All right, let's jump in. We're going to go Philippians. We're working through this book, Philippians chapter 1. So Paul wrote the church in Rome. He wrote them a letter and told them that he really hopes to come and visit them. Actually, we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. He's talking about this Roman church, not Philippians, this Roman church. He says, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That's his prayer. Somehow, by God's will, I will succeed in coming to you. Writing to the Roman, the church in Rome, hoping to come visit them. Here's what I say. Be careful what you pray. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. He writes this letter. He goes to Jerusalem. He starts preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. We call it his third missionary journey. He goes to the synagogue in Jerusalem, which is where he always went to start preaching. And when he started preaching the gospel, an angry mob rose up against him. Uh, they, were, they were dead set on lynching and stoning him. He's in Jerusalem. Uh, he's rescued by being arrested. That's the only thing that literally saved his life from the angry Jewish mob that wanted to kill him. So he's arrested. Now he's a prisoner of Rome. He gets a couple of hearings. But nothing is decided. So for two years, Paul sits in a prison in Caesarea. Just sits there. While he's there, he becomes the object of unfair insults and lies and rumors and shame. Well, finally, after two years, he appeals to Caesar in Rome and, and, and says, Hey, someone needs to hear my case. So they decide, okay, let's send Paul to Rome. Remember what Paul prayed to the Roman church. I hope to come to you. So now a prisoner of Rome, they say, well, let's send Paul to Rome to, to get his hearing in front of Caesar. Well, he get, they put him on a ship. On the way, the ship shipwrecks. It, 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 it breaks apart, and Paul literally has to swim for his life. Uh, doesn't escape being a prisoner. They catch him again. He's a prisoner of Rome. They take him to Rome. He has a hearing in Rome where he defends himself and basically says, look, what I am doing is preaching the good news of Jesus, and I'm not going to apologize, and I'm not going to stop. So he kind of pleads his case in the high corner of Rome, and now he's waiting Nero to make up his mind whether he will live or die, but he's in a prison in Rome. Be careful what you pray for. His prayer, by God's will, that I may get to Rome. Well, he has... Just maybe not in the way that he had hoped it would happen. And while he's in Rome, waiting on Nero to decide, will he live or will he die, he writes the letter of Philippians. So Paul wasn't a prisoner because of, he committed a crime. He was a prisoner because he represented Jesus. As we read this letter, I, I, every time I read Philippians, it, it just Paul almost seems superhuman to me. And we read this, it's like, how does this, how does this guy just keep going? It's like he doesn't have a breaking point. It almost seems like the greater the struggle, the more he rises up to the occasion. And you're going to even see that today. Let's go Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. So Paul writing from this prison in Rome, writing back to this church in Philippi, these people that he dearly loves, here's what he says to him, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
Oh, good. Finally, some good news, Paul. Sweet. What's happened to me finally, or what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is very joyful now because the gospel is advancing. Okay, when I say gospel, I mean the good news, the message that Jesus came to save sinners. That's the gospel. So Paul has some good news for this church. The gospel is advancing. And many of us at Hill City, as we started this church, we had this vision of seeing the gospel advance in, Hill, in Springfield. Of seeing literally the gates of hell push back in Springfield. And seeing single moms who are struggling to make ends meet, to see them rescued out of that. To see children who don't have families become adopted. To see people, a man with, with, who's just showing up to work and coming over at home every day is miserable to see, for him to see the good news of the gospel. Like We have that in our mind. We want to be a church that sees the gospel advancing. We call it gospel restoration, where the gospel's restoring things. But I wonder, as I, as I was studying this message, here's what I wonder. Do we have maybe unrealistic expectations of what that looks like? Like when we think about the gospel advancing and pushing back the gates of hell, like here's what, here's what I envision, excitement. The city loving us, huge crowds, big buildings, like these things. Well, I wonder if we have a wrong view of what it looks like for the gospel to be advancing. Because Paul says, what has happened to me has really caused the gospel to advance. Well, the question is, what's happened to Paul? Verse 13, let's look at it. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's happening that's making the gospel advance? Paul's imprisonment. I bet even Paul, when he started his first missionary journey, had these grandiose ideas of what it would look like to see the gospel advance in his part of the world. But I bet prison was not on that list. We have a ton of college students here. College students are very ambitious, right? They want to change the world. They want to see how see what God can do in their life, and you have all these great ideas of, I can go here and I can teach all these people and I can preach here and I can do this. Maybe the way God wants the gospel to advance in the world is through your suffering. Because that's how he's going to do it in Paul. What has happened to me has really caused the gospel to advance. What's happened, my imprisonment is for Christ. If it's me, it's a different story, guys. Woe is me. I'm in chains. My ministry's over. My effectiveness is shut down. Paul says, no. What's happened to me is furthering the gospel. Like Paul's saying, my circumstances have turned out to be better for the advancement of the gospel. Paul would say, it is better for me in prison than for me to be free to advance the gospel. That's what he just said. So a major difficulty in Paul's ministry has been turned into an enormous opportunity for the gospel. And guys, let's put ourselves, some of you guys, you're very driven people. Put yourself in Paul's shoes like the very thing he wants to do, be out preaching the gospel. He can't do it. 
He is chained. He's handcuffed. But he says it's better because the gospel advancing. We'll find out why that's the case in a little bit. It's interesting, as Christians, I feel we blame way too much on Satan. Like, send a group of people, you get the, the mission trip to the Dominican Republic, you go there and your flight gets canceled. Uh, oh, Satan's after us, he's trying to stop us. Right? Maybe, or maybe God's providing an opportunity. Take a trip, mission trip to Africa and someone gets sick. Oh, Satan's trying to stop us. This person got sick. Well, that or maybe because you're eating peanut sauce in Africa that has pieces of, of goat intestine in it. That may be part of why you're sick. Notice he doesn't say that what Satan is doing to me by my imprisonment. No, here's what he doesn't know. He's not going to try to figure it out. Is it Satan? Is it God? Is it? He doesn't know. Here's what he knows. I'm in prison, but the gospel is advancing. Therefore, I rejoice. Christians, every time something bad happens in your life, bad meaning something you would not desire, don't necessarily blame it on Satan. Because it may be the will and the mercy of God in your life. One of the things that I teach, um, teach people to ask, I, I got to stand up in front of the, the, uh, the football team last week who lost a, a brother who was, who was murdered. And here's what I told them. I said, you can ask why all day long, and you're never going to know that answer. But here's the question. Here's the appropriate question. I think here's the question that maybe Paul's asking as he's sitting in this prison. God, what do you want to do in me through this circumstance. Not why am I in prison? God, get me out. God, why would you do this? No, this is my situation. I see the gospel. God, what do you want to do in me and through me through this circumstance? That's the appropriate question. And I think that's what Paul's thinking. And so he's able to have perspective. He's able to see, look, I'm in prison. It's not my idea. I wanted to come to Rome. I made it, not the way I wanted I have this job to do, I want to do, but as I evaluate my situation, I can see that God is working in this. He's working in me, and he's working in other people, and the gospel is advancing, therefore I rejoice. If you've ever studied the life of Joseph, it just seems like every time he does something good, something else bad happens to him, things he doesn't deserve. And here's what we see in the book, of, in what Joseph says all the time, what others intended for harm God meant for good. Christians, one of the greatest mercies of God in your life is he allows you to suffer. He allows you to go through situations that you would not choose. May we not ask, God, why would you do this? May we say, God, what do you want to do in me and through me through this situation? So Paul's in prison but he can rejoice because the gospel is advancing. For Paul, Christ was greater than his comfort. Therefore, he can rejoice. The gospel is advancing. I rejoice. Like Paul's so driven, he's so focused on his mission that nothing else matters as long as the gospel's advancing. Some of you are like, man, that's just... Isn't that radical? 
Yes, it is. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it is. And Jesus never apologized for it. Jesus never apologized for calling people to a radical lifestyle where they put him above all those. He does not apologize. I feel like in the church, many times we want to apologize. We want to make Christianity a little bit, a little bit more easy to stomach. But the Bible doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. Here's what Jesus will say. Take up your cross and follow me. That's not very pleasant. Jesus will say this. Lose your life for my sake. But then he follows it with, and you will find it. See, Jesus doesn't apologize for that radical call of obedience because he knows it's in that call of obedience that you will actually find life. I mean, as we read Paul, the dude's found life, man. He's found joy. The call of Jesus is to deny yourself. It is to take up your cross. It is to follow him no matter the cost, but it also comes with the promise that in so you will find life. You will find joy. So hear me, this is radical, and Paul is radical, but the Bible does not apologize for that. So Paul's in prison, he writes back, he says, what has happened to me has been good because it's caused, a further, caused the gospel to go further. What's happened, he's in prison. So here's the question, how does Paul being in prison, how has that caused the gospel to go forward? Or what has become the result of Paul being in prison? How is God using that? Let's keep going. Verse 13b, here's what he says. Because it's become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, studied a lot on this idea of the imperial, imperial guard. No one knows exactly what he's talking about. But what they think he's talking about is Caesar is kind of his top escalon of security. Secret service. So what Paul's saying is become known throughout the whole secret service, these people that are, that are, that are the highest in, in control as far as the prison or as, as far as like military, like these people at the, at the top level, it's become known all throughout them that my imprisonment's for Christ. Here's what's happened. Paul is in chains now. We'll talk about that in a second. He, he's being guarded 24 hours a day seven days a week by this imperial guard, imperial guard, and they can't ignore his message. Like, I can imagine the talk in the break room at the imperial guard. Hey, Johnny, you been around that Paul dude yet? Yeah, man, watch out for him. He's, he's crazy. He'll get you. Like, he'll, he got this message that he's talking about, and be careful because, like, Timmy was listening to that, and all of a sudden Timmy's over there praying with him. Be careful that they got the force is strong with this one, Right? <laughs> Like, that is the talk all around the imperial, imperial guard is, who is this Paul fella, and what is this message he's talking about? And Paul says, it's become known throughout the entire imperial guard that I'm here for Christ. I can imagine the believers in Rome before Paul's arrested, before he's taken to prison, I can imagine, just like we would hear the believers in Rome saying, God, will you give us favor with people of high influence? God, will you give us favor with Caesar, with his officials, with his house? Will you give us favor 
with near, will you give the, with the politicians? God, will you please give us favor? Guess what God's done? Put one of the greatest, the greatest missionary of all time right in the middle of that prison. And Paul's there, and he's converting guards right and left. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard that I am here for Christ. A prisoner may be bound, but the gospel cannot be. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. So the very thing that the Romans were trying to do, which is bind Paul to bind the gospel, is the very thing that's causing the gospel to be unbound and to spread. You can't silence the gospel. Jesus was killed as a criminal because they wanted to shut him up. But had they known the very death he died is what would actually set us all free, they may not have killed him. So Paul says it's become known throughout this whole imperial, imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ and he's having an influence among the, some of the top people in that society. And as I was studying, I learned this, as I was studying this, like some deeper understanding even behind what was going on. Like when I pictured Paul in this prison, I picture him sitting in a cell. But that's actually not, what hap- not, what, not what's happening. We see in Acts 28 where he's talking about this. Here's what he says. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you. Since it's because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Okay, now, when he, uses, when he says the word chain here, it's not the word that he normally uses. Remember, this is all in Greek. Normally, the word he uses means chains, handcuffs. But when he says the word chain here, it's the Greek word halusis. Okay, halusis is a short chain that would have one, one bar clasped to the wrist of a prisoner, and then one a short chain clasped to the wrist of a guard. Paul was chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They literally can't get away from him. Everywhere Paul goes, he has a guard chained right there. What do you think that guard's going to hear? It's become known throughout the whole empirical guard. I bet it has. But think about the picture of that. Let's not miss this. A believer sold out to the gospel, chained to an unbeliever. What a picture of what we're called to be. Because this person's chained to him, and Paul is just sharing the gospel over and over. As a matter of fact, later in Philippians, we see Paul, and, and he writes to, as he's closing out his letter, it's uh, chapter 4, I think, it says, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Here we go. Especially those of Caesar's household. I think it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Paul's getting a little smart aleck at the end of his letter. Like, hey, all the saints here greet you. All the brothers greet you. And the empirical guard greets you too because they're chained to me. Christians, believers, what does it look like to be chained to Christ and chained to an unbeliever. 
What does it look like to say, I love this person so much that I will be chained to you in a way where I constantly am showing you love and grace and showing and talking and displaying the gospel to you? What does it look like for some of you to be, you, you, you use a phrase, well, I'm chained to my desk. Maybe, or maybe you're chained to a desk that's right beside an unbeliever. Maybe you need to be chained to him. Well, I'm chained to school. I'm sick of these, I'm sick of all my tests. I'm sick of this. Maybe, or maybe you could be chained to an unbeliever and see how God wants to use you in their life. See, it's all about perspective. Paul's in chains, but he's chained to someone who doesn't know the gospel, and so he's going to preach the gospel to that person. What does it look like for some of you to be chained to your neighborhood? One of the things that Brad and I have prayed our goal for Hill City this year is that we would have five of our couples or singles move into apartments or, or um, duplexes or any, in this little region. Five different people. And our prayer is that they would be chained to that apartment complex. They'd be chained to that loft complex. And here's what they'd say. My job is to show these unbelievers the, the, the glory and the beauty of Christ. I'm chained to you and to give their life for them. What a picture of what we're called to be. So Paul says, my imprisonment has furthered to advance the gospel. Number one reason, first of all, because I am chained to the empirical guard. It's become known throughout all these top people that I'm here for Christ and I'm sharing the gospel with them. And the gospel is advancing because of that. And here's the second thing we see, another reason. So we see that inside the church, Paul's having, having a like an impact also. Look at verse 14. Because of Paul's imprisonment, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the gospel, to speak the word without fear. Paul being in prison, the result, empirical guard is hearing the gospel. The second result, believers, other believers in the church are becoming more bold. There's something about persecution that makes true believers rise up. And that's exactly what's happening. Imagine, put yourself, imagine the tension in these churches, guys. You're a believer. You've been a Jew your whole life. You've come to believe in this message of Christ, and you're seeing all these people around you get arrested and put in prison and killed. And here's the thinking like, oh, man, do I believe this? Is this worth it? And you, you almost sense people like wrestling with this question like, do I believe this enough to be hauled off to prison? Do I believe this enough to see my family get killed? Do I believe this? And so this is going on in these churches. It's not a day where you just come to church as a casual like Christmas and Easter. Hey, we're here. We're so excited. You don't do that in this time. Like Being a Christian puts you on a short list, and it's not a good one. And Paul says, because of my imprisonment and because these believers in these churches are seeing me not back down and seeing me become more bold because of this, those other believers are becoming more bold in their faith. They're becoming bolder. They're preaching the gospel more. If you want to look at where the gospel is flourishing in our world, look where there's persecution. Communist China. Gospel flourishing. Something about persecution that makes true believers rise up 
and become more bold. And that's exactly what happened. Many of you guys have heard the story of um, back in the 60s, I believe, the five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador. They made a movie called End of the Spear. You guys have, have heard that story. Um, these young missionaries go to share the gospel, this unreached tribe uh, who's a very, very dangerous tribe. The, the people end up turning on them and killing them. And so here's what you would think is in that day, like, missions, done. <laughs> right? Newspaper headlines, five missionaries killed by a spear while trying to share the gospel. You would think that all the young people would be like, well, I'll take missions off that list of what I want to do. You know what they found? The opposite. There was a revival in college minister in colleges all across the country, and by the hundreds, college students were stepping forward, say, "I'm going, I'm going," and they saw the opposite: this surge in people that were willing to go be missionaries across the world. There's something about persecution that makes true believers rise up. So Paul, remaining bold, remaining faithful, his strength became their strength. So Paul's in prison. He says the gospel's advancing, number one, because I have, a, I have a voice now with the empirical guard. Number two, because other believers are becoming more bold by seeing me, see, seeing what I'm doing, and they're stepping out and they're sharing the gospel. Let's look at the third result of Paul being in prison, and here it is, the critics become louder Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. The former, those that preach Christ out of envy, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Here's what happens when Paul gets in prison. All these other people start stepping up to share the gospel, but he has critics. And they start sharing the gospel, and they start saying things like, hey, you need to believe, believe me and follow me, because look at Paul, the fool got himself in prison. His critics become loud. He's getting disapproval in the world. The Romans think he's nuts. Put him in prison for it. Now he's getting disapproval from other evangelists and other people that are preaching the gospel, saying he's a fool for being there. He's getting disapproval everywhere. By the way, I found in my life to see be the, the disapproval from Christians is way higher than disapproval from the world. Just expect that. Many of us have this idol of approval. Like our, one of our greatest desires for people to approve of us and what we do. If Paul would have had the idol of approval, he'd have gave up. Because he was finding it nowhere. His imprisonment, these afflictions that happened, these hard things, made his critics become louder. Let me make you a promise. If you step into the call to make disciples and the call of ministry, the critics will get loud. I promise you. It's a great, as I was studying a great speech, uh, many of you have heard this, by Theodore Roosevelt. 
several years ago called The Man in the Arena. And as he's giving this speech, I want you to picture this idea of this boxer, this fighter that's in this arena with this huge crowd to watch him. And here's what he says about the man in the arena. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasm, great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. Hear me, church. If you step out and do the work of the ministry, the critics will grow loud. But the critics are on the freaking sideline. And Paul has critics all around him. And they're growing loud. And Paul says, I don't care because I'm in the arena and I'm doing this thing. Let's go. If you choose to step out and to make disciples in gospel ministry, I promise people will say, you shouldn't do it that way. There's a better way to do that. You shouldn't go to that place. Good Christians, they don't go there. Don't do that. You're compromising. You're doing, I, I promise the critics will grow. But what I've found, every time the critics grow loud, I just get a little more <clears throat> in me. So it's not the ones on the outside that counts. It's the man in the arena. And some of you know what it's like to get a little dirt on your face. And some blood coming from your nose. And you've fallen down a few times. But you're brave and you're daring greatly. And you're trying to share the gospel. And you're trying to do ministry. Don't listen to the critics. I remember I was, I was teaching at a, a little school before I became a, uh, came into ministry. I was teaching at a school in a little small town. And uh, was a school teacher, a coach there, and was also started, become, started doing youth at a church there in town. And over a, about a year, year and a half, um, we start seeing a ton of kids start to believe in Christ and get saved. Um, and we'll just say this town um, was not a fan of that. Let's say that. Well, as that starts happening, what do you think, who do you think quickly became the target? The person who's a teacher and a coach in the school and also leading students during the week at a church. End up getting fired, got rehired. And I remember this defining day, I can remember like as yesterday, I was in the cafeteria and I just had a conversation with someone who had said, Hood, you better like, you better back down of the church thing if you want to keep your job here. It's basically the conversation. You know, teachers, we, we go get our lunch and we go sit in one little area. And I remember getting my lunch and walking through and I'm looking out at all these kids that are eating that are, and a bunch of them are coming to my church and they're hearing the gospel. And here's what I said. Bring it on. I don't freaking care. So I said to myself, bring it on. 
fire me, I don't care. Because I was actually trying to do something. Hear me, guys. You step out. You try to do things. You try to lead people to Christ. You try to get in the ministry. You try to lead the greeters or play music or lead the kids there. Hear me. The critics will talk. They will get loud. But they don't count. It's the man in the arena that counts. And Paul says, I can rejoice because the gospel's advancing. I don't care what my critics are saying. Hill City Church, what could God do in your life if you let go of your fear and your need to find approval everywhere? What could God do in your life if you were, if you were unafraid of what other people might think or if you would have their approval? What could God do? Oftentimes what we fear doing is most often what we need to do the most. What could God do in your life if you said, I don't care about the critics. I don't care about prison, which you're not going to end up in prison unless you do something really stupid. Like we live in America, you're not going to get arrested for being a Christian. What could God do in your life? Oftentimes success can be measured by the number of uncomfortable situations we're willing to put ourselves in. Hill City Church are you in the arena? Because I love you, hear me, but showing up at church once a week in the arena, that's the stands. Are you in the arena? Are you loving people? Are you coming alongside people who are unbelievers and sharing the gospel? Are you coming along people that are sick, that are, that are in our community, and loving them well and taking risks? Are you stepping out? Are you, are you trying to find a place to serve and to see God use you? Are you stepping up into the arena and saying, I'm going to do something because God has equipped me to do that? I am so, so incredibly proud of my wife. I'm going to brag on my wife for a second. Um, she stepped up to lead our Hill City Kids area, which if you know my wife, um, she is very, very talented, but she likes to stay in the back. She wants to be behind the scenes, doing all the things behind the scenes. She would like, she never, ever, ever wants any type of credit, and it's genuine. She doesn't want it. She wants to be behind the scenes. We had a need arise, and we needed someone to lead the kids, and she stepped up and said, well, I guess I'll do it. She's brave. She's scared to death, but she's brave. She shared with me this year, we made some goals, each of us made some goals for this next year of life, and here's a goal that she made. It's totally not her, but I love it. Do at least four things this year that I've allowed fear to keep me from doing in the past. That's a goal. Stepping into the arena and saying, I don't, I don't freaking care what they say. I'm just going for it. Hill City Church, what could God do in your life if you forgot about the critics? And for many of you, your biggest critic is yourself. For most of you, your biggest critic is yourself. What are we afraid of? What do you want to do? You have these visions. You have this thing you want to do, but fear has always kept you back. What are you afraid of? One great philosopher says this about fear. Named must your fear be before banish it you can. 
What are you afraid of? And I'm, think about it. Write that question down. Wrestle with it. What are you afraid of? Name it. Define it. Conquering fear means defining fear. You have to define it before you can conquer it. What are you afraid of? Is it a person? Is it a specific person? Is it a status that you're afraid you might lose? Is it a job? Is it a paycheck? What are you afraid of? Define it. Define your worst nightmare. The absolute worst that could happen if you stepped out and did what you feel like God wants you to do. What is the absolute worst would happen? Write it down. Take a scale, one to ten. One being add, no big deal. Ten being into the world. Put a number on it. What is it, a four? Someone might laugh at me. Is that... What's your fear? Define it. Put a number by it. And then ask the question, is that all I was scared of? See, a lot of times we fail to, we fail to name our fear, so it just becomes this great big monster there that we really don't even know what it looks like. We just have a head underneath the covers, and we know there's a monster out there. Name your fear. Look at it and be like, well, that ain't nothing. What are you putting off because you've been afraid to do so? Because you've been afraid to step into the arena? Paul says, I can rejoice because the gospel is advancing and I'm a part of that. It's not advancing the way I thought it would. I'm in prison, but it's advancing. Other believers, I'm watching them, they're becoming more bold because they're seeing me step out. It's advancing. My critics are getting louder. I don't care. Bad press is good press. The gospel's advancing. Let's keep going. As we wrap this up, let's bring it to the cross. If there's any reason as a believer, any reason you should dare greatly, it's because of the cross. Because the cross says you are accepted, not based on what you do. Like, God's not going to see you try something found like, well, the cross doesn't count for that person. No. Guys, you're accepted. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, period. You're accepted. You're in. Now go. Dare, try, fail, succeed. It's okay. The cross screams, you're accepted. Now in freedom, go and live for me. So as we take communion today, as believers, as Hill City Church, corporately, may we dare greatly. Because we know our identity is not in the success of what we do, but in what Jesus has done for our behalf. And may the gospel advance among us. Let's pray. God, may you reveal to us our fear. May you put a face to it, a name to it, May you identify that fear to us and what is holding us back. And may we look at that and say, is that all I was scared of? And in doing so, God, may you set us free to live the life that you've called us to live. A life pointed towards other people. We're chained to unbelievers. 
And may we do it all, most importantly, not because we want to gain your favor, but because we have your favor. May we do that with freedom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.